Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10. And the title of the study is Finding Contentment. This passage that we're looking at today really breaks into two different portions of Scripture, verses 3 through 5 and 6 through 10. In verses 3 through 5, Paul writes and talks about a discontent group of people. They are the false teachers. Their discontentment is manifested by the way in which they create strife everywhere they go and their, un, their covetous uh, ways in trying to make merchandise of the body of Christ. They're not content. The other group is the rest of the body, verses uh, 6 through 10, and how that they have contentment. So we can contrast these two groups, and we'll first of all look at that that first group. Let's read verses 3 through 5 together. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So we'll stop right there and look at this first portion. And that is a group of people that Paul says, don't spend time with these people. These are not the kind of people that you want to be engaged with and spend time with. Who are they? They are a group of men who are denying the word of God. And it, it, the way that the language of this, these verses is they don't consent to wholesome words. They uh, deny the words of our Lord Jesus. And they do not um, receive teaching that accords with godliness. So in these three ways, we see these as men who are denying the teaching of Jesus, the word of God, that instruction that was being given uh, to live a godly life. False teachers have been around from the very beginning. The very first false teacher, Lucifer. And where was his pulpit? It was in the garden where he began to deceive Eve as she was being tempted, questioning whether God had really said, adding to the word of God, twisting the scriptures. And this has been his number one technique and he does not have many bag, uh, tricks in his bag, but this is probably his best one, is to undermine the word of God, to question it, to challenge it. And so we see that nothing changed from the garden up until the beginning of the church. And we can see in the last 2,000 years that the enemy still seeks to undermine the word of God. False teachers deny the word of God. It's characteristic number one of them, if you will. We'll see a few characteristics of who they are. But number one is false teachers, they deny the word of God. This is something that we must be always on alert for. And, and, and I think within the last few years, we've seen an increase of those who once used to embrace the teaching of the word of God, and now they don't. And specifically, under that last statement that we looked at, those that don't want to receive teaching that accords with godliness. And so, if you just think about one area of godliness, a person's sexuality, this is an area that has been coming under incredible uh, 
attack. And many who would otherwise believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and every other area of life have pulled back and say, well, I don't know that the Bible got it right when it comes to this matter of sexuality. And it sounds something like this. Well, you know, I just believe God is a loving God and that he would never want me to deny who I am or to deny myself. And yet, is that true? Does, does that align <coughs> with what Jesus said a, a disciple of his, of his would look like? He said, if you want to follow after me, you need to take up your cross and what? Deny yourself. Right at the very heart and the essence of what a follower of Jesus Christ does is to deny themselves. And we hear this, and we need to challenge it. We need to push back. We need to understand that this idea that we would not deny ourselves of something that we want, a fleshly desire, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. Somehow to deny ourselves means that God would never ask that. That is completely untrue. It does not only does it not accord with uh, the teaching of godliness. It denies the very teaching of Jesus and what He had to say. When we think about the Word of God and how we interact around the Word of God and the impact it has upon us, I've mentioned this many times, and I feel so compelled to do this because. Over and over again, we see that this is something that's missing. There's four things as it relates to the Word of God. It is the inspiration of Scripture. It is the inerrancy of Scripture. It is the uh, sufficiency of Scripture. And it is the authority of Scripture. Let's talk about those. Evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, usually don't balk at the idea of inspiration. What do we mean by that? The Bible came from the Lord. What we have written down here is God's ideas. It's his thoughts given to men who wrote it down. Okay. So when we look at this, we talk about inspiration in scripture. You'll find very little protest among evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. Well, if it's inspired and it came from God, then it should be given that it's inerrant without error. God doesn't make mistakes. So this book that's come to us, the Bible, um, from the Lord is therefore without error. And then we come, well, because it has come from God, it also has, it's sufficient. He knows exactly what we need for salvation, for life, for relationships, for living in godliness. It's, it is sufficient. And that's where we begin to see the chink in the armor and a lot of believers' understanding of the word of God. Sufficient. Well, I don't know if it, well, I don't know. We might need more for godliness and for godly living than just the Bible. I mean, after all, it was written so long ago. Does it really anticipate all the circumstances? And then when you come to authority, if it's going to unravel, it's my personal opinion, this is where it unravels first. It's, when it's not in the matter of inspiration. It's in the matter of authority. And then it will go to the sufficiency. And then it's the errors. And then it's, well, we don't even believe it's from God. And you, you can see this take place. So what do we, when we talk about authority, what do we mean? The Bible has the right and the authority to tell us how to live, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be a parent, how to be a, um, a child, how to forgive those that have harmed me, how to um, you know, walk in love, how to be a witness, how to use my gifts, how to interact with my, uh, to be a good steward of my finances, my resources, of my time. God's word has the authority over my life 
to tell me how do I live. So a Bible-believing Christian would look and say, well, what does the Bible say? And if there be any dispute when the Word of God is read and is clearly understood, that's what I must do. But you see, that's what's under attack today. That's what was under attack in the garden, and that is what is under attack in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's the authority of the Word of God. Jesus said and had teaching, and they were questioning it. There was teaching, doctrine that accorded with godliness. It was being questioned. They didn't consent to those wholesome words. They did not agree with them. And this is what Paul confronts. He says, don't have anything to do with people like that. Those that undermine the Word of God, those who reject the Word of God, don't have anything to do with them, withdraw from them. Now, for the point of calling them to repentance, we interact with them. For the point of giving an apologetic to those who have a question, we lovingly engage in that process. To know the times in which we live in and what the isms and such are of the day, we certainly want to be aware and we may well read what they have to say that we might be able to, just like Paul did, he knew what they said, he knew how to answer them. But this is a warning I want to give, is information and the availability to be exposed to false teachers or just people that are anti-Christ altogether and have ideas that are anti-biblical, we must be careful. We must hear what the Word of God says is that we should withdraw from them. Now, I agree that there's a place where we should interact with them to know and to call them to repentance, but you've got to be honest with yourself. When that moves from wanting to help them or wanting to be able to warn others to the place where now you are being led down the road of that teaching and it's now starting to sound appealing and it's now causing you to question the teaching of the word of God and the sufficiency of it, you are no longer in a healthy place of interaction with that and you need to withdraw yourself. You need to back away from that. You know, a disciple in the first century world would often be found right next to the teacher in a physical sense. Yes, in a, a kind of a, a follower, in an um, ethic, ethical sense, they would follow the teaching of them, that person. But often, they would just follow them, follow them. I'm going to Capernaum. All right, let's go. And they would follow. I'm going to Jerusalem. They would follow him to Jerusalem. Not just embracing the teaching, but they would also... Be right next to them, which meant that they not only got to hear the doctrine, but they got to what? See the doctrine. They got to see the teaching lived out. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continue steadfastly in the doctrine of the Bible. Well, that's a true statement, but what we read is they continue steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine, which is the Bible. But there's another side of that. You can see that they were not only listening to the teaching that they were given that was coming from the Lord, but they were watching it become the apostles' doctrine. And there is such value in getting close enough to a, to a person that we can see the doctrine in their life. What does Troy's doctrine look like? Well, hopefully it sounds just like this, but hopefully it looks just like that. And this is the challenge we have in our day. There's benefits to the way in which information can be disseminated across long distances in an instantaneous manner. I mean, you know, we've had people watching from around the world, right, on our live streams, and that is a blessing. 
But there's also a challenge to that. And the challenge is this, is that you can begin to interact with somebody else's doctrine and teaching having no idea what it looks like on their life. You have no idea of the character. If you go through, and we have gone through 1 Timothy, the emphasis in 1 Timothy was not make sure they're really a good Bible teacher. Make sure that they really can keep your uh, attention. The, the emphasis upon the kind of men that are appointed as elders was their character. Character mattered. And this is what the emphasis was. It isn't even on the style of leadership. Is it Episcopalian? Is it, you know, a, 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 a congregational government? Is it a Presbyterian type government? Is it a hybrid of any one of those? That's, that's not found in here. What's found is the character of the men that are to lead. And so a lot of what people have to say they don't have to worry about their character. All they got to know is how to push out a post in a really creative way. How to put together a smooth-looking website and draw people in. How to be a great marketer online. And their stuff can get out there without knowing anything about their character. So there are benefits to the, time, the way in which we're able to disseminate information. But there's something that's so important about us being disciples of people that are teaching the Word of God and have a, a model for us. I just want to encourage the younger generation, if you have a godly mother or a father, you need to be modeling your life after them. Don't go running to the Internet for all of your answers. Ask mom. Ask your grandmother. Ask your grandfather. Find those godly people in your life and work through those things with them because you have no idea the character of the people so often that are going to be giving you ideas. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. I am not saying don't look up how to do something. I am so glad that there was a YouTube video that I watched on how to string my weed eater. Because I was pulling my hair out on how to get it done. It's like, how in the world do you get this? I don't understand. Oh, you line it up like this and you put it. That is so easy. But it was helpful to have somebody show me how to do it. So I'm not anti-internet here. I am just saying when it comes to those ethical, moral, family-type decisions, you should, if the, if the exhortation is to withdraw from ungodly people, then the, the positive side is to draw near to those that do consent to wholesome words, to those that do believe in the words of Jesus, that do teach things that accord with godliness. So important. So one of the characteristics of these false teachers who were not content is that they deny the word of God. The word of God is the end of the conversation. If you believe in the inspiration, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, and the authority. Well, if God said it, this is what I got to do to make it right with this person. This is how I need to be as a husband, as a wife. Whatever it might be, the word of God becomes that authoritative. Now, these men were not like that. That's why Paul says, just get away from them. Don't allow them to have any other influence. In verse 4, those that reject the word of God, he says, they're proud. Now, they obviously thought they knew. They thought they knew so much that they even knew better than God. But he says there in verse 4 that they are proud and they know nothing. Now, what they were pretending like was that they even knew more than Jesus. Well, hey, Jesus said, yeah, yeah, I know. But you know... Let me tell you what I think. I don't think you should deny yourself. But Jesus said to deny yourself. Yes, but you know, this is what I think. Well, Paul says, you're arrogant and you know nothing. 
Why does he say arrogant? Because when you begin to take the word of God and the teaching of Jesus and you give it a little hip check and you push it over here to make way for your own ideas and your own flesh to do what it wants to do, you've just elevated yourself above the word of God and therefore God himself. You're not. You haven't done that in reality. But in practice, what you're doing is you're saying that you're smarter than God. Well, I just don't believe this portion of scripture applies. I don't believe that this is the way we should live it out. Well, how do you know that? Because I've got a Bible that's come from God, and you're saying that you know better than him. So in reality, if you know better than this book, and you say this part's good and that part's bad, and you are the one that's able to figure that out, really, we ought to just follow you rather than the Bible. Because you are so full of answers, you know more than the Word of God. Paul says, withdraw from them. They're proud. They're arrogant. And although they think they know something, the reality is knowing nothing. They don't know anything of importance. Those that would dismiss the word of God, the teaching of Jesus, and instruction that accords with godliness are not the people we go to. So they are false teachers, deny the word of God. They are people that are full of pride and arrogance, the first half of verse 4. The second half of verse 4 as we see that they are those that generate strife within the body. They like to fight disputes and arguments over words. They really don't ever get to a conclusion on anything. It's just a continual fight and wrangling that takes place. There's reviling. There's envy. And he says this is not helpful. They are people, the end of verse, uh, middle way through verse 5, they are destitute of the truth. We need to be making certain that we align ourselves with teaching on how to live and how to deal with life's issues and problems with those that believe in the Word of God. It's not that they don't, other people don't have anything to say, but it's that we, why do we need to go to them when they are dismissing the Word of God? You know, there, there's so much that's being written every day. And I just want to exhort you to get your marching orders from Scripture. What does the Bible have to say? Well, you know, I know this person has to say that. There, there might be truth in it. I'm sure there's some. Otherwise, it wouldn't work at all. It wouldn't sell at all. But when somebody is anti-Christ and they don't believe in Jesus and they want to begin to you know, talk about the, the major issues of, of the world and what we should think and do, I, I, just, I have a hard time getting excited about it. It's like, you don't believe in Jesus. You believe that his teaching is false. Therefore, whatever you have to say is going to have very, very little significance to me. So they generate strife in the body. And at the end of verse 5, they suppose that godliness is a means to, of gain. In other words, they, they pretend to be spiritual leaders, but they really are only doing that to get into your pocketbook. They see it as a means to gain reputation, a means to gain finances and money. And this is just a real brief description of what false teachers look like. And Paul says, be done with them. Do you know that false teachers go away if nobody follows them? If nobody listens to a false teacher, they're gone. If there's no money for a false teacher, they're gone. They'll find another group. And so we have a responsibility to not uphold their teaching and uphold them by 
giving them any kind of allegiance whatsoever. So, this group thought they could find contentment by ripping the church off. And they didn't do that. In contrast, though, we can move into the second part of the passage, verses 6 through 10, and, and we see how do you find contentment? How do you find, the, in, in verse 5, it says they thought it as a means of gain. Well, they didn't gain, they lost. So as we move into uh, this next portion, Paul says this is how you find not just gain, but great gain. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. The word great here is the Greek word mega. Mega gain. They were looking after just simple gain. But Paul says, well, let me do one better. Mega gain. So godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So godliness. They were dismissing the teaching that called people to live a godly life. We need to live godly lives. And there is such a blessing in abiding in the word of God. And there is such pain when we don't abide in the word of God. To to be godly is to have a, a reverence for the Lord and for his word and his ways. And then to walk it out. Lord, what are your commandments? What is your will in this difficult circumstance? That's what I want to do. Lord, I seek you. I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman. We're not looking for ways to kind of, well, I just want to get close. You know what I mean? I don't want to be like overly righteous. I just want to get close and be mostly righteous. No. We're to seek after the Lord our God with how much of our heart? Our whole heart. And the Lord said that if you don't seek after me with your whole heart, you're not going to find me. I'm a great God. I am worthy to be followed with everything. And so we run hard after the Lord and godliness, doing the right thing, thinking the right things, saying the right things, doing the right things. Let's just talk about godliness as it relates to our speech. When you have used ungodly speech, does it bring a real um, cloud of contentment and peace around your life? You know, when you get online and you type stuff and you hit sin and you're like, oh no, why did I do that? And then it all begins to blow up in your face and everybody's mad at you and your people are yelling at you and you go back and forth. Just what is the feeling of that moment? Now you may think you're right. I'm not even asking are you right or wrong? I'm just saying when you use ungodly speech, which of course is wrong, but you maybe say the right thing, but you just blow up a situation, is your life just saturated with peace and tranquility at that moment? No. It just eats at you. You put your head on the pillow and you're still like arguing with people in your head. It doesn't bring any contentment. It doesn't bring great gain into your life. It brings a great loss of peace. Enjoy. We need to be careful in this matter of godliness and the things that we say. <laughs> what, the, what the Bible says is that we should speak only those things which are for the necessary edification and, and the building up of the body of Christ. So your mama was right. If you don't have anything to say, don't anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. 
And so when we, and I think it's just such a, a needed exhortation in this hour, be careful of what you say and how you say it. Do you need to say something right now? Do you have to say something right now? Because this is what the Word of God says. He is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be, what is it? Few. That's right. You don't need to talk more. You need to talk less. And when you talk, let it be for the necessary edification and building up of the body of Christ. Well, I just had to vent. I just had to, really, you just had to vent. Do you got a verse for that? You know I mean, you're justifying, you're venting. Do you have a verse that says, and when you are feeling frustrated and angry, make sure you just blurt it all out? I don't think you got a verse for that. I know I don't have a verse for it. I like to blurt. I can tell you that. I mean, I like to, I like to let it rip, but... Praise God for the work of the Spirit in my life to just control this little member that's more unruly than any other member of the body, the tongue. And we are warned against this. How often we regret the things we've said. God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Well, that seems so narrow. Narrow is the path that leads to life and few are they that find it. You don't have to speak on every issue. You don't have to comment on everything that's going on. And I know in this text-happy, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we all feel like we got to say something. You don't have to say something. What we need to say is those things that accord with godliness, that bring edification. And I just would encourage you to be so careful in this most, I don't know, pumped up, charged season we're living in right now. If you want to vent, then take the example of the psalmist who goes and he pleads before the Lord for the things that bothered and troubled him. Sometimes the things in the Psalms that bothered and troubled the psalmist was God. And they said it. And they talked about it. But then as they were honest and reverent before the Lord with how they were feeling, their hearts would be changed and the Lord would reveal his character and his nature and his ways and they would repent and then they would come to the place where they were right with the Lord and they were worshiping him again. That's where we need to go. Maybe the reason why we feel the need to get online and just go blah is because we're not before the Lord saying, Oh Lord, search me and try me and see if there's some wicked way. Lord, why do the, why do the godly pro, ungodly prosper? And to lay it out before him and wait for the answers to come from him. The discontentment we have should come and be laid out before the Lord. And wait upon him all day long. It's easy to tweet or whatever else and say things that we're going to regret. So I just encourage you in this one matter of our speech is be godly. Or in the things that you ponder and you think upon. Make sure they're godly things. Again, can, same scenario for every one of these. Let's think about when you have thought all day long about being angry at somebody and bitter at somebody and you're thinking of all the things that you know, they should have done or you should have done and you ponder that all day long. At the end of the day, how do you feel? Like you've had great gain in your life through that process or great loss of peace? So godliness with contentment. Contentment is that state of mind where you are satisfied with the present. 
That doesn't mean you don't have a desire to see something come or go. We have prayer requests we lay before the Lord. Maybe you're waiting for good news on something. I hope it comes in the will of the Lord and you're able to rejoice in it. But those are happenings. And happenings come and go, don't they? Did anybody see that headline that came up? The man who went and spent, whatever, $200,000 on a brand new Lamborghini. And like, you know, an hour later, an hour and a half later, he had totaled the whole thing out. I assure you, when he was pulling out of the parking lot, there was a big smile on his face. And it felt good. Brand new Lamborghini. Look at me and everybody watching. Probably, it was a happening. It was a moment. But as soon as he either got hit or ran into something, I have a feeling that the happiness was gone. What do you think? Wow. Happenings, they come and they go. It's like the, it's like the surface of the water. You, know, you, can, you can have waves and you can even have a top current going one direction. But those strong currents that really move things, that go deep in the water, can be going in the opposite direction. You can have one current going this way and deeper in the water it can be going the other way. And a lot of times there will be no, you know, it's just a surface current and then still waters underneath. And that's the way life is. You have a lot of things that are going this way. And maybe they're even going against you and they're blowing against your life. But because we have contentment, that is, that state of mind where we are pleased with what we have, that we're not being tossed to and fro. There's a steadiness about our life. There's a deep a push behind our life that's taking us down this road of contentment and great gain. When you take godliness and contentment, which only comes from God, and you put these together, you now have mega gain in your life. It's so important that we learn to walk in godliness and contentment so we can know the fullness of the life that God has planned for us. If you want to have contentment with it, God, without godliness, good luck. They go together. This is how the Lord has designed it. I want you to think of a very familiar passage and what David had to say. And I want you to help me finish it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I what? I shall not want. Is that because everything in his life was perfect and easy and David had no troubles at all? David had troubles in his family. Sometimes David had troubles within himself. He had troubles with enemies. He had troubles with those that were friends that became enemies. He had a trouble with a father-in-law who became his enemy. He had all kinds of troubles in his life. But he had learned this. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm content. When we can make that statement without any other condition being placed upon it, and where we're living a godly, godly life, that's when we find mega gain. That's when fullness comes to our life. It's not, Lord, you're my shepherd, and as soon as you bring this into my life, then it'll be all right. Lord, you're my shepherd, and as soon as you take this away, then it'll be all right. Lord, you're my shepherd, and as soon as you turn everything around, that's not what it says. It's a statement of faith in the sovereignty of God as a good shepherd to bring everything into our lives, to bring us into the green pastures, to bring us by the still waters, to prepare a table, to supply for us in the midst of all kinds of controversies when enemies are surrounding us. When we are able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want. We are saying, God is in control of my life as a follower of his. And I believe he will do everything he needs to do in my life at the right time. And therefore, I'm going to rest. I'm going to take it easy. I'm not going to want. I'm just going to be at rest. I'm going to be content. Again, it doesn't mean that everything on the surface is going well. I mean, there could be all kinds of storms blowing around us. But because we know that God is our maker and our savior and our shepherd who says he'll never leave us or forsake us, I can say in the midst of all kinds of trials that are staring me in the face, I can say, God, I'm resting in you. I'm trusting in you. Now, you may have to do that like 20 times a day, right? It'd be nice if we could just say, all right, I trust you, and then we never have to worry about it. But challenges come up. And sometimes it's the same challenge every day, and the thought just hits us again. Well, our response needs to be, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm walking in godliness. Lord, I can have this great contentment which leading me to great gain. There's so many times in my life and in your life, in all of our lives, where we've been hit with trying circumstances that try and move us away from contentment. And I want you to know that even as it is a choice of whether or not you're going to walk in godliness, listen, listen, it is a choice whether you're going to be content. It's a choice. Like, no, no, no. I'm waiting for that overwhelming sense of well-being just to to wash over all my senses and all my emotions and all my mental faculties, and then I will know contentment. That's not the way contentment works in the kingdom of God. It's something that's much deeper and much more, um, uh, it lasts longer, it stays longer than that. Because if you're waiting for all of your emotional senses to get the right experience in your mind, what happens when everything on the surface goes crazy again? Then your contentment is gone. So this contentment is so much deeper. I mean, through this whole building project, I mean, if you would have told me at the beginning of the project, I mean, we thought we knew how much it was going to cost, but if you would have told me how much it would have cost, and then you would have told me partway through it, there's this thing called COVID-19 that's going to descend just as you are in the last phases of the building project, and this is it. Are you ready to go buy the building? I would have said, no way. And yet it all happened. That's the way it went. And there were days, not just because of COVID-19, but there were just days when I'd come over to this building, and I would see the mess that was in this building. I walk into these rooms and I'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. Who purchases a building like that? And I would actually, you can ask my wife, I would tell her, you're right. I'd be like, I feel like physically, physically I feel like my breath was being taken away at times just with the project in front of us. But you know what? To the glory of the Lord, that didn't stake with me for more. I mean, it stuck with, I'd feel it for minutes. And I would turn it over to the Lord. And then when the whole COVID-19 thing happened, I was like, okay, we have staff, we have missionaries, we have a building project, we have a radio station. Wow. What are we going to do? Because in my mind, I thought, for sure, that, you know, the finances are going to become less. We're going to have to be creative on how we do ministry. And we began to pl- plan for it. But the very opposite happened. But in the midst of it, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. 
And I just would, I mean, my prayer was sounded like this. Lord, you've got a problem. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's a thing called COVID-19. We're in a building project that you let us into, and I don't know how you're going to take care of this. Lord, I trust in you. How's it going to come in? I couldn't project that. I wasn't going to get in the flesh and make it start to happen. I was like, Lord, my eyes are on you. We're trusting in you. And that didn't happen once. That happened many times. Sometimes that happened multiple times a day. That I had to say, I trust you. You are my shepherd. You are the shepherd of this church. Lord, I'm walking in godliness. We've sought you. We believe this is the best thing. And so I'm not going to want. I'm going to rest. You can take those circumstances and you can apply it to your health situation. You can apply it to relationships, your, your job circumstance. I mean, if you want to, you can work yourself up into quite a, a lather over everything that's going on in the world. What's going to happen in the country? Who knows what's going to happen in this country? I mean, nobody, I mean, the things we're experiencing right now, none of us anticipated. If I would have stood up and, you know, on the first day of this year, January 1st, and say, well, I've got a, I want to tell you what's going to happen in 2020. You would have thought, all right, that dude's lost it. He, this construction project is way too much for him. He has snapped. He's talking about the world shutting down, and he's talking about, you know, all this chaos and all this, nah, he's lost it. And yet that's exactly what happened. We don't know how it's going to end. I mean, we feel like maybe it's getting better. Maybe it's not. It's getting, maybe it's getting worse. Maybe it's getting better. I don't know how you feel about it. We don't know how it's going to end. But in one sense, as it relates to the message today, the contentment for anyone in Christ is not dependent upon what happens in this world. Your peace is not dependent upon what happens culturally, socially, electorally, or any other way. Your contentment, your peace, your godliness is governed by your relationship with the Lord. You don't have to be afraid. When the most common and frequent Commandments in Scripture is fear not. And so we trust. Lord, you're my shepherd. You'll take care of all these things that are rising up around me. And so he says, hey, these guys, the false teachers, they think that ungodliness and covetousness, trying to make money off of you, is going to bring them gain. It's the exact opposite. Contentment with what you have and godliness is going to give you Mega gain. Let's look at the, the last verses here in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And we'll pick it up there. Let's read verse 7. For we, are, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. That's a pretty long list, isn't it? That's it. Food and clothing. All of you got clothes on. And if you didn't eat, then we can provide for that. And so with food and clothing, you should be, that's a, that's a really, really short list. What is on your list of what needs to happen to be satisfied with your provision? And these are the very things the Lord has promised to take care of. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, 
for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is the very thing that kept the rich, man, uh, rich, uh, rich young ruler from coming to the Lord and following him. Because he didn't want to give up his stuff. Is it wrong to have a lot of stuff? Well, we've already talked about that. No, it's not wrong to have a lot of stuff. What's wrong is to have a desire for a lot of stuff. Now, you can have nothing and have a desire for a lot of stuff and be in sin and be full of you know, temptation, whereas the wealthy man or woman is not full of temptation because their eyes are upon the Lord. It's the desire for riches. It's the love of money. It's not riches that's evil. It's not... Um, having stuff that's evil, it's when you have uncontrolled desire for them. And that will lead you to make unwise decisions. I want this so much, I am willing to compromise my faith and my godliness in order to have it. And that's what pierces us through and causes so much trouble and heartache and pain. We need to remember contentment, contentment in what the Lord has provided and that we can trust in him to take care of us. We'll close with this passage. Turn with me to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's the number five book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 8. And I want to read a few verses. From this, I encourage you to read far more than where we're going to go. But I want you to, to see this point, verses 1 through 3. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may obey, excuse me, that you may um, live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So here it is. They left Egypt from slavery. And as they left that, they were to make a 40-day journey into the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But because of their sin and disobedience, the Lord um, allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, which became a real crisis of provision. How do you feed millions of people out in the wilderness? And God said this, Each day of the week, except for the Sabbath, I am going to provide food on the ground for you. But before, the day before the Sabbath, I'm going to give you a double portion. Collect what you need, and then the next morning when you wake up, I will provide it for you again. That is the word that proceeded from the mouth of the Lord. They could, if they tried to store up a bunch of manna to last them for a week, what happened to it? It went rancid and worms got in it. It was, it, it was terrible. It, just, it, it was not a good thing. So... The Lord uh, made it so they had to trust in him every single night when they went to bed that in the morning there was going to be manna, that bread-like substance that came from heaven for them. And he taught them for 40 years, you trust in me 
Don't trust in the bread you can see growing in the field. You trust in me. And he humbled them. Meaning this, he made them dependent upon him. Is it a bad thing to be humbled? No, it's not. And let me just say, like with the children of Israel, maybe the Lord has humbled you financially to be dependent upon him more than you ever anticipated. Or emotionally, maybe he has humbled you. And you are more dependent upon him for a a sound mind and, and emotions than you've ever been in your life. That's okay. That's all right to be humbled in that way. There's many ways in which the Lord can humble us. But we need to learn to trust in him and believe in him. And when we live on the word of God, now we can find that contentment. Our faith is full. The Lord said he would never leave me nor forsake me. The Lord has promised to be with me in every one of my trials and crises. He has promised to see me through. I trust in him. And just like the children of Israel, you learn the value of what God's word says versus the value of what you can plan for and save up and store up on your own. And this is where the Lord wants us. Now we live in a blessed country, at a blessed time in this country where there is abundance. Especially as you compare to world standards. But it's, we need to be careful with that. Because the Lord can. He can humble us in a moment and get our eyes back on him. So listen, godliness, contentment, just knowing that God's going to take care of it. I'm pleased with what I have. This will bring such an amazing gain in your life. You will have fullness. You will have an overflow. Not because you're you know, your bank account or the cupboards or your whatever is overflowing, but because deep within you, there's an overflow in your life. And if that's not yours, as a child of God, he's given it to you. It's available for your, your enjoyment, but you've got to abide in him. You've got to walk it out. Now, if you're here and you've yet to come to Christ, this is the first step. And as you do that, and you repent of your sin, and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he's going to change your heart. And whereas you have not had a desire for godly living before, he will change that. He will write upon your heart, and that will now become the desire of your life, is I want to please and live a righteous life to the Lord. If you don't have that, you need to get saved. And it's only in putting your faith and trust in the Lord that you find this transformation of your heart and your life. And then you can walk in confidence and contentment in the Lord and you will see that fullness just be yours. We have no idea what the future holds. Maybe everything will settle back as a country and it will be better on those measurable levels, better than ever before. I pray for that. But maybe it won't. Maybe we've gotten a warning shot and we know what's about to come. And that, you know, that creates a little bit of uncertainty. It causes a little bit of trepidation. But you know what? If we are walking in godliness and our eyes are on the Lord and walking in contentment, don't worry about it. You have mega gain in your life. And you will be more than okay. You will be abundant 
And the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. He has been so faithful to see the generations of the church that have come through who have predominantly been viewed as the offscoring and the abused of culture and society. And he has seen them through. And they testify of this fullness. And certainly it is for us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for salvation, that you changed our hearts, Lord. There was a day when we confessed you and you were working on us and we prayed and as we received you as our Savior, you changed our hearts and gave us a heart to do the right thing, the righteous thing. Thank you. Lord, I pray too that you would help us to walk in contentment, to have that, that ultimate peace in our life, that you are in control and everything is okay. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And if we have lost hold of that, if we have missed this in our life because of the circumstances that are going on, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would realign our hearts at this moment. If you're a believer... Your life seems like it's a million miles away from mega gain and contentment or godliness. Then come back to those things. Come back to the first works of your faith. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, then call upon him. Ask him to pour his spirit out upon you. To change your heart. To give you salvation. To enter into this relationship that you might know of this peace, this sense of well-being that comes when you have Jesus as your shepherd. It's hard to know what that's like until you enter into it, but all I can tell you is that it's real, it's abiding, and it's not fairy tale stuff. It will, will be with you throughout the day and throughout your life. We'll give you a moment to pray and then we're going to close with this song and give you an opportunity to come up and, and receive prayer if you need that. godly lives lives that look like yours Lord we want to walk in contentment not like the Gentiles not like the world around us worrying where worrying about where our food and clothing is going to come from but knowing that we have a father in heaven who said I'll provide teach us contentment Teach us the great reward of righteous living.